Hello, welcome to the Charity Impact Podcast, where we aim to help you increase your charity's income and impact by sharing the experience and expertise of our guests. I'm Alex Blake, your podcast host. And before we start today's episode, I'd like to introduce you to another podcast for the charity sector, and that is Third Sector Podcast. Here's their host, Lucinda Rouse. Lucinda, why might our listeners also enjoy listening to the Third Sector Podcast? Hi, Alex. Yes, very good question. Well, we are a podcast for charity management professionals, focusing on issues concerning the management of charities, as that might suggest. So we cover topics from fundraising, looking into some of the latest fundraising innovations. We ran an episode with the people behind the Amaze um, charity prize draw competitions to campaigning and the role of charities in society and how their voice needs to be heard. We have a combination of guests, expert guests, much as you do as well, to provide their insight and that their experience from within the sector. And then we also have some internal discussions between members of the third sector editorial team. And yeah, we try to make our discussions as constructive as possible, as useful as possible for people who are running charities. So as well as informing people on issues affecting the sector, we also have um, some features on, for example, a recent one that comes to mind is how to land a high net worth donor. And we've also trying to lift the lid a little bit on some of the roles within the sector with a mini feature series called The Day in the Life. So looking into the day of the life of a grant giver and other job titles coming up. Oh, yeah. And for anyone that that didn't pick up um, Third Sector podcast is by Third Sector, the publication, the magazine that we've been all reading for years and and is now an online publication. Um, So there's often a bit of chat about the kind of latest news and stuff as well, I think, isn't there? I know I was recently listening to a really good one with Lord O'Donnell on the future of civil society. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, that big report from Pro Bono Economics came out, I think it was a few months. I think it might have been actually way back in January. But I just recently listened to that. That was really great. Um, is there a recent episode that you'd particularly recommend that people start off with? Ooh, yes. I would say we had an interesting one a few weeks ago about how grant makers can make funding fairer. Uh, So we had an expert, Sarah Denslow from NPC, the think tank, and we had another guest, uh, Yvonne Field from the Ubeli Initiative, um, talking about how funders can better incorporate diversity, equity and inclusion considerations into their grant making processes. And it was a really interesting discussion, really interrogating risk and how grant givers should be reassessing their take on risk and their approach to risk and be looking less at the risk of a certain grant not having the desired impact, but more looking at the risk of missing impact if grant givers continue giving funds to the same types of organisations and and don't look into new ones, particularly um, those led by ethnic minority leaders. Yeah, great. It's definitely something that's come up in a number of our conversations as well. We've had Safina Ahmed from John Elliman Foundation, we've had Derek Bardwell and Rodri Davies, Emma Beeston, so a number of people in the sort of philanthropy and foundation space, and that definitely seems to be a topic that's coming up a fair bit. So thanks for coming on and recommending those few um, episodes. I definitely recommend people check out Third Sector Podcast. And now we'll get on to today's episode. I'm joined today by Martha Awajobi, who after a decade of fundraising set up JMB Consulting in 2020. JMB, described as the consultancy with swagger, is all about reimagining whether that's what leadership looks and behaves like, how we generate income, or how we respond to racism. Martha also founded BAME Online, This conference brings the best people of colour talent to its speaker lineup and isn't just about doing better fundraising. It's about looking at our sector through an anti-racist lens and creating something better. So the 2023 conference is online on 27th of July and the tickets are pay what you can. So I suggest you go and get your tickets ASAP. If you just go on the JMB Consulting website, you'll find those nice and easily. And we're going to be discussing some of the key topics today that relate to that conference, including authenticity in fundraising, anti-racism and joyfulness. So welcome to the podcast, Martha. How are you today? 
Well, I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Before I even start, I have to mm. say that I didn't actually found BAME Online. It uh, was I knew I was going to mess something everywhere. up in the end. <laughs> <laughs> it was with fundraising everywhere. They kind of started it and then brought me on as their curator. So the kind of concept of the conference and like the way that it was, you know, the speakers and how the flow was, was me. But actually in the second year, as a team of white people, they were like, oh, it's actually quite inappropriate for us to hold this. So they handed okay. over all the intellectual property to me and my team. It's very nice of them. Um, so I'm not the original founder, but I was part of the group. Okay. Near enough. We'll, Near enough. We'll, we'll not really record <laughs> it. That'll do. It'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with the NGOification. Can you speak to that for us? Okay, cool. So I feel like I'm probably not going to do this justice, which is why everybody should go to the conference. I will have the real thinkers <laughs> talking about it. But there's a few people who kind of talk about NGOification, NGOization in different ways. Aaron Duffy Roy, who is an amazing writer and activist. Insight as well, coming out of the States, who wrote The Revolution Will Not Be Funded. And then we have Ilyas Nagdi and Asfar Shafi talking about it in their book, kind of Reclaiming Anti-Racism. I'll start by saying that like NGOs encompass such a wide range of different organizations doing different things, big, small, kind of bureaucratic and institutional, and also very kind of flat structured and more radical. So I think my thoughts on NGOization or NGOification, I can never remember which yeah. ones, I'll just say both, is mainly a kind of critique of like mainstream organizations, those kinds of larger ones. But I think some of the smaller organizations, the critique kind of still stands. So for me, it's kind of the professionalization and kind of bureaucratization hard <laughs> word, um, of like social movements, of kind of radical political action and services that come from mass movements, um, like community organizing and political organizing. And um, Aaron Dassi Roy actually says, and I've got the quote here, so I'm going to read it word for word, um, that NGOs diffuse political anger and depoliticize resistance. And for me, like that's kind of really hits the nail on the head for me. Um, many NGOs kind of claim to be like apolitical, which I don't really believe. And they aren't really challenging injustice, right? They're actually choosing to kind of be neutral, neutral. I'm putting that in inverted commas because I don't really think there is kind of neutrality when it comes to social injustice. And there is a famous quote that says, if you are silent in the face of injustice and you've chosen the side of the oppressor, right? And actually I see kind of NGOification as kind of that, like charities kind of taking, de-radicalizing, like really incredible, like activist work and making it apolitical and therefore legitimizing a deeply kind of troubling and harmful system. Yeah, I guess a lot a lot of mainstream charities are kind of accepting the system as it is and mm -hmm. then trying to kind of work within that the best that they can, aren't they, rather than really, I suppose it's, it's that difference, I think, between social impact and social change. Like a, a, lot of, a lot of charities aren't actually aiming for social change. They're, you know, they're kind of helping the people they help the best they can, but they're not really looking to change the system. Um, I think so. so. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of charities might think that they are trying to change the system. And so often what we hear, what I am often quite disturbed by is like the narratives that charities tell about who they are and what they're doing and what they stand for, particularly like adopting a lot of the language of radical activism talking about decolonization, not doing any decolonization, talking about anti-racism, not doing any anti-racism. And for me, it kind of comes back to who are NGOs accountable to? I know organizations will say that they're accountable to their communities or the people that they're there to serve. But as someone who has spent over a decade in fundraising, I remain skeptical about that. Mm. They're accountable to their funders, right? <laughs> who yeah. often have links to government and funders wield this like, enormous amount of power. Derek Bardwell wrote an amazing book called... Um, give back, how to do good better. And he talks about philanthropy as kind of the good cop to capitalism's bad cop. Like there's two sides, two sides yeah. of the same same coin. Yeah, yeah. we had Derek on a little while ago, so people can dig into that one as well to get, and I know he's been on like, so many podcasts as well. So his, I know, I'm a uh, his huge voice fan is out that. there. Yeah, he's really good. He'll be embarrassed by how much I talk about him. Every time <laughs> I'm on a podcast, I'm like, do you know Derek Bardo? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the other aspect around that sort of NGOification debate I think that was interesting was around sort of de-radicalizing the community leaders and you know those people that kind of have a have a voice and they're you know perhaps kind of set up and lead grassroots organizations and are very much about trying to change the system and then almost like the I suppose yeah funders often but also like other parts of the sector potentially and then 
trying to kind of give them give them some more money kind of you know give them a bit more resource but at the same time kind of saying we don't really want you to say those things or to kind of act or speak in that way you know this is the way that you need to act to get mm. things done and kind of all of that it's like softening some of those kind of communications it's saying like you know this is the way that you're going to be able to change things you need some more funding to get the funding you need to kind of be nicer to these people rather than being quite so challenging and things like that so yeah that was that was a really interesting kind of point around it that I thought yeah you can kind of see it happening yeah, you can. And I think something I'm quite interested in and concerned by, but I'm watching because we haven't really seen the impact of this, is that there are quite a few larger organisations who have started community organising teams. Okay. So who have started, I'm not going to name names, but they know who they are, who have started <laughs> hiring like brilliant organisers, like really right. well-respected organisers, taking them away from the communities, taking them away from the streets, mm. um, where they actually had a huge impact. Because we know... And like big change has not been won by NGOs. <laughs> it's been won by people coming together and taking action, right? It's been won by communities taking a stand by either withdrawing their labor, by, you know, disrupting. And yes, charities have had a role in that. But actually, if we're thinking about completely like dismantling the status quo and building a kind of new future, it is those more kind of like radical, like grassroots organizations who have historically played a key role in that. And um. One of my favorite quotes from Race to the Bottom, which is going to be one of our sessions, uh, it's going to be called Reclaiming Anti-Racism, but we've got Ilyas Nagdi and Asfar Shafi who kind of talk about this like NGOification. And they say, in the face of deeply reactionary government hostile to any sort of progressive change, NGOs will remain an important actor, perhaps vital in the defensive struggle against criminalization and coercive power. And they continue to say that while certain skills may be transferable from grassroots organizing into NGOs, NGOs run the risk of thinking that by building their brand, they're in fact building a movement, and that by fine-tuning their comms, they're winning a public argument, or that expanding their media presence means that they're moving towards victory. And I think that really kind of like sums it up for me when it comes to how do organizations act when they are, you know, either trying to create an identity of, the, of, of themselves as being kind of part of this movement for social justice, or when they're trying to kind of respond to criticism of like racism, transphobia, you know, patriarchy, et cetera, et cetera. It's usually a PR exercise rather than thinking about, okay, what are the institutional mechanisms in my organization? What is the culture? What are the ideologies that underpin how we see ourselves? Um, and I thought that was kind of really, really important and something that I really struggle with when doing anti-racist work in the charity sector is that organizations are really, really kind of fixated on, okay, what do we need to write in our statement? Or like, how can we, what language should we be using to talk mm -hmm. about oppressed groups? And I'm like, it doesn't matter. Where is your money coming from? Like, how does money move within your organization? Like, where does power sit? And I think what is really uniquely British, I think actually is that, and we talk a little bit about this in the conference, is that the terrain of social justice is being fought in the terrain of language. And that is something that NGOs, I think, are really, really like instrumental in being part of that kind of language war. I haven't fully got my thoughts formulated mm -hmm. on that, um, but it's been really kind of interesting having like these feelings about the sector and then like starting to read a little bit more, you know, the books that I've kind of been talking about. And I'm like, ah, that's it. That's what yeah. I've been thinking about, that kind of, you know, fine tuning um, our comms in order to look like we're doing something but I think organizations have no idea what it means to be in solidarity with oppressed people mm. I mean we're, we've been using the term NGO a lot because we started off with that that sort of NGOification topic I always think of international NGOs whenever we talk about NGOs I suppose in that context there's like a whole additional layer between like global north and south and stuff like that isn't there which I think I won't take us down that huge rabbit hole <laughs> Um, but I think uh, you were leading us on to the next thing that I wanted to to ask about, really, which is to explain to us, like, what's the difference between being not racist and being anti-racist? I don't think there's such thing as being not racist, firstly, right? Um, um, something I find really interesting is that if you look at when people say, I'm not racist, it's usually when they've been accused of racism, right? It's a deflection. And I think a pretty poor one at that. 
usually it's a way to distance yourself from your own racism and from like the horror that it brings people. I think a lot of people are horrified about the fact that they could be racist, more horrified by that than actual racism. And for me, I don't necessarily think that anti-racist is something you can be. It's not an identity that you can hold because that means it just sits in the realm of language again, right? It's something that you do. Um, you do anti-racism. It's a practice. It's a daily commitment to action. And I think the framing of like being anti-racism, being anti-racist, I'm anti-racist. It requires nothing of you. It's just a name. Um, but if I asked you, okay, so you say you're anti-racist, but what do you actually do? Um, that's what makes a difference. And I'll think about my own kind of, I think people think about these things differently. The way I think about anti-racism is about dedicating yourself to learning the truth about race and racism, understanding the history of white supremacy, naming white supremacy as a central driver in political affairs, in the way you think about the world, in the way our belief systems are structured, understanding the history of colonialism and imperialism and how it has kind of structured our institutions, and then understanding your relationship to white supremacy how it impacts your life, how you've internalized its features like perfectionism, like power hoarding, competition, individualism, fear, paternalism, which is a big one in the charity sector. And then once you've done that kind of learning and reflection on yourself, it's then dedicating your life, and I mean your life, to dismantling these systems, creating new cultures, new ways of being in relationship with other people, creating new systems of value. For me, it's all about understanding power and your relationship to power and using all of the mechanisms that you have at your disposal to dismantle white supremacy. It is something that you do and you choose to do every single day. And I think, you know, the kind of I'm not racist is again like wearing a hat of like being, you know, racist or not. But I think, you know, if you don't understand race and racism, you will not understand that we are all conscripted into it, right? Like we are all kind of, we're raised in a racist society, the UK is racist and anyone who thinks it isn't, like it's utterly deluded. How can you not have internalized those kind of cultural frameworks, like those ways of being, those ways of working? Um, I think it's very arrogant and quite deluded to think that you can somehow like not be touched by these oppressive systems that we are literally swimming in and wading in at all times. Um, so yeah, I think it's very much an identity versus an action. I'm not racist. Like, I don't, you know, I don't want to be called. I don't want to be associated with that label. And like, I choose to do anti-racism, which is acknowledging my own complicity, my own conscription in racist systems. We've all played our part. Like, otherwise the system wouldn't exist, right? <laughs> so, and then, yeah, it, it's the action. And there's a really good process by a Hawaiian activist called Poka Lengwe, who talks about the process of decolonization, like kind of decolonizing your mind in many ways. And he says it's five steps, which is learning and unlearning, mourning, which we do together, dreaming, committing, and then acting. And I see many organizations are <laughs> really kind of going through that process. I think a lot of, you know, organizations or individuals will like rush to act without like really understanding what they're acting on, like really you know, lots of people are like, we're doing anti-racist work. And I say, what's racism? And they can't answer that question. I have not met many leadership teams in the charity sector where they, where they could confidently tell me what racism is, which is concerning, but also just goes to show that there is, yeah, a lot of work that needs to be done. I think the sector has all of the resources to do it, but it is emotionally unequipped, let's say. Yeah, it's an interesting topic. It's a tough one. So say I'm sitting here as a white guy. And I would certainly like hope to see myself as being anti-racist. But when you set out like this is what I think anti-racist is, like I've, I definitely haven't done all of that work to kind of like really learn about like all the historical stuff. Like I've, you know, I feel like I have an ex experience of understanding what racism is. Obviously, it's from like a sort of secondhand experience because I'm not receiving that sort of discrimination and that sort of thing. So yeah, like there's, I guess there's some kind of spectrum that you're on in terms of like, obviously the the, lang the terms of the language are not always helpful, but there's obviously sometimes there's got to be like, there's the people that are really racist on one end of the spectrum and the people that have done all of the work to be really anti-racist on the other end. And then that, like, I would say I must be somewhere in the middle because I know I've not done all of that work. So I'd hope to be like somewhere to, more towards that end. And then there'll be some people that wouldn't see themselves as being like racist and kind of proactively just being like yeah that's what i think but have those kind mm -hmm. of ignorant views and then there'll still be somewhere people like somewhere in, in the middle who are kind of like 
wouldn't discriminate against anyone, wouldn't kind of particularly take part in negative actions, but maybe aren't doing anything particularly positive either that have kind of like, I suppose I was going to say neutral, but like you were saying, there's not really a neutral either. You're kind of like accepting it, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a, yeah, it's a challenging one. Um, And I think a lot of people, a lot of people's understanding of racism is an interpersonal understanding, um, which is, you know, did you discriminate against someone? Did you do X, Y, Z act? Did you think, or did you say this thing? Right. And that's kind of, what we have been taught purposefully, I think, to think is like the reality of racism. But actually, that's a very kind of small part. That's like the overt part that like people understand, mm. like the part that people really, I think, need to get their heads around in like ideological racism. Where did all these belief systems come from? We have a long history of race science that kind of, you know, said that people like me are inferior. We are unintelligent. We, you know, have thicker skin. We're less likely to feel pain, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's the institutional as well, which I think is the bit that people are really kind of missing out um, and not really kind of understanding. It's like, you know, how does money move and how does that impact race? Like how, where does power sit within an organization? Who makes decisions? Why do they make those decisions? Who are they making them for? Who are we accountable to? That kind of stuff. And I think, you know, the racial literacy in this country is appalling. The racial literacy in the charity sector is like shocking, right? (laughs) So... And a lot of the work that I've been doing, like with BAME Online, um, not just the conference, but we've got a YouTube channel, like a series of kind of essays, artwork, et cetera, is working with an academic who is an absolutely brilliant race scholar to help people understand what they're talking about when they talk about race, right? And actually, there is so much work that people need to do on, there's the learning, but then there's also the kind of like understanding how it applies to you. I think people are so afraid of being labeled as racist, racist that they will like push the label away. And I'm like, no, actually, we need to like own that. Like, if you're raised in a racist society, you're guaranteed to be racist. So the next question is how rather than, you know, I don't want to be racist. Like, what can I do? Like, we need to understand how we're racist. We need to understand like why we think the way we think. What is very unique about us, like me as a person and how I respond and how I uh, perpetuate white supremacy because it's not just white people that are racist like look at yeah, our government, of course. you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and for white people I think what's really interesting is because whiteness is like invisibilized like we can't really talk about it without like everybody freaking out we think that racism is something that happens to people of color but we never really think about the fact that like there are perpetrators of racism there are people who actually benefit from the systems of racism whether they're discriminating or saying horrible things or not they're benefiting economically and socially from these systems of racism. And white people have just as much skin in the game as people of color. White people are also racialized. They're just racialized positively as white, which is something that Ilyas um, and Asfar talk about in their book. I recommend that everybody reads. Um, but anyway, I could talk about this forever. I know we've got a load of questions. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> yeah well, it, it leads on to the next one anyway, but I, I took us down a slight side path because I was like interested from my own individual perspective um but i suppose that then as you say there's the sort of institutional perspective as well so i wanted to ask you really what needs to change within charities so yeah for charities maybe for example like a disability charity if they were thinking about anti-racism what do they need to think about to understand why that really needs to be at at the heart of their practice and and understanding that as opposed to just having kind of a policy um, to not discriminate against people? Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good and important question. And I think, like, where do I even begin? I mean, if we're thinking about achieving mission, like you have to take into account oppression, like otherwise you're not achieving mission, you're achieving mission for white people, right? Um, or for, you know, cis people or for straight people, if you're not thinking about kind of the ways that different oppressions kind of compound and correlate. And racism is the reason for poor outcomes, um, across everything for people of colour, right, in every single area of life, particularly groups like Black Caribbeans, Gypsy Roma Traveller people, Bangladeshi people, Bangladeshi communities. So can I take a disability charity, for example? If you are a person of colour who is disabled, you are less likely to be able to access uh, services. Um, if you're a person of colour who is disabled, you are more likely to be in danger when you have contact with the police uh, because they might read your disability as aggression, right? Um, and we see this happen quite a lot when, you know, people either disabled, autistic, um, and they come into contact with the police, uh, they're not afforded the same kind of protections that like white people would be, right? And you can see it in kind of any type of organization. So say you were a medical organization, 
black mothers are like four times more likely to die in childbirth than white white mothers. And this is due to racism in healthcare rather than anything to do with their biology. Right. And these ideas, and we can think about it in terms of disability as well. We're thinking about kind of healthcare. The ideas that we have in medicine are direct legacies from race science, which I kind of mentioned earlier, this false science that was used to justify slavery and the oppression of black people. Like we feel less pain. We're subhuman. And actually, you see this. There's been really interesting like polling, like data coming out of the NHS where people still hold the view that black people feel less pain. Uh, black mothers are less likely to believe when they say that they're in pain. Often, like black people are seen as like wanting drugs, right? So you're kind of in every single, like in every single service that you're walking into, you're walking into a service that is institutionally racist anyway, right? So the same with kind of charities. And even if we think about poverty, right? Uh, black and minority ethnic people are two ta- 2.5 times more likely to be in poverty than white people. Indian households have 90 to 95p for every one pound of British wealth, Pakistani households have 50p, Black Caribbeans have 20p, Black African and Bangladeshis have 10p. If you're thinking about what it means to really achieve mission for any type of organisation, you have to be thinking about how oppression is linked to that. And not just like the, you know, just race, like say like a Black trans disabled person, right, is going to be experiencing even more challenging circumstances than a Black cisgender straight person who's able-bodied, etc. So I think it really needs to come back to like understanding what your mission is and understanding what your and reframing your mission, I guess, because I think lots of charities are like, you know, this is our mission, but actually their mission is just this for white people. Right. And that's kind of where it stops. And I think charities need to have some like serious critical reflection. People in charities are really attached to their identity as charity workers, believing that because they work for a charity, that means that they're a good person. Somehow charities think they're actually immune from the conditioning of white supremacy, Mm -hmm. capitalism and imperialism just by the virtue of working for an NGO. It's so interesting. I have organizations who are like, yeah, we're we're an anti-racist organization now. Okay. And I'm like, what have you done? And then, oh, we set up a reading group. I was like, okay, well, you haven't done anything then. (laughs) (laughs) But but they will think that, you know, they're already doing good work. So they actually... Mm -hmm. Don't. I think charities do less work than a lot of other organizations to understand how they might not be acting in the best interests of racially minoritized people. And I think it does kind of come back to like human nature a little bit, right? Humans are complex. We're deeply flawed people and we are capable of inflicting great harm. And I think the fact that we try and pretend in the charity sector that we couldn't possibly do that is like our ultimate downfall. I think charity leaders and charity workers need to have a long, hard look at themselves in the mirror and force ourselves to really see what we're doing and who we are, not just what we say. And I think what's been really interesting, I do a lot of kind of, you know, anti-racist practice work with organisations, big and small. I have clients, large, large organisations. I've got really tiny ones, with just five people, um, helping them to do the, the really difficult work of understanding their relationship to systems of oppression and how they've perpetuated oppression through their institutional mechanisms. And Every single one of them is like, oh, my God, we've never done anything like this before. And this is so hard. And I'm like, okay, well, you've existed for X amount of time saying that you're good people and saying that you're trying to achieve mission, but you're nowhere near that, really. And for me, it does start with admitting that they're racist, like that they're institutionally racist, that, you know... And I don't think that's a hard thing to do. As I said before, I think it's quite arrogant and deluded for people to think that they can exist in a racist country and not be racist and not have kind of, you know, racist organizations. All you need to do is look at who's in leadership, right? And like, not even like looking at kind of, you know, just the kind of divert ethnic makeup, but look at like what universities they went to. Look at, you know, like what they all have in common. A lot of it is that they are so far removed from the communities that they claim to advocate for. In fact, they probably don't even understand in the slightest the issues that their communities are really dealing with. And I think that comes back to that question between being not racist and being anti-racist. I am not interested in working with an organization that says we're not racist. I wanna work with organizations who are like, yes, we are racist. We must be given how we're structured, who accesses our services. Um, but what we wanna do is understand how. What we wanna do is build a new culture, new institutional mechanisms, willing to work hard, willing to lose partnerships, willing to lose funding, willing to lose relationships that are with, you know, organizations that don't serve their goals to become anti-racist or to build anti-racist practice, who are willing to challenge their funders, willing to challenge the government, willing to no longer be apolitical because our missions demand that we take a stand. They do. They demand that we take a side. Um, So that's what I would say. 
Yeah. Um, and I don't, I feel like people kind of want me to give them like the strategy. Yeah. And I'm like, actually, the strategy is kind of simple. Like, but it really does stop. I think people are like, what do we do right now? And I'm like, yeah, because be people want like- practical stuff, don't they? So it's kind of yeah, like, yeah. yeah, you're like, well, okay, I see the issue, but what do I do? People mm. want that kind of, and, and people want simplified, don't they? Like, it's, it's all complex stuff, and people want their kind of like 10 point like tech list of things yeah. that they can kind of do and like put into a work plan and things which is just fair enough and I guess you get to that point but there's a whole load of work that you need to do before before there's a whole to... load of work I have one organization who have like basically committed to working with me for a year doing one day a month with me for a year and only after that will we be able to get to the strategy point because I'm like you don't even understand what racism is you can't talk about white supremacy confidently. Like you're not in a place to be able to even start dreaming of what an anti-racist organization could look like because you haven't really got the grips on racism. And I'm like, if I've been studying this stuff for my life <laughs> and I'm still like a little bit like, am I ready to start strategizing? <laughs> um, and I think that just kind of goes to show a lot of people don't, I, don't, I, think, I think don't take this seriously. Or don't realize that like, this is a matter. This is a matter of life and death for people of color. We saw in COVID that the first like fifteen doctors or medical professionals that died mm. were all people of color, and that's not because of anything intrinsically wrong with them or anything kind of you know any kind of biological inferiority that they had. It's because of medical racism. It's because of how they were treated within their within their organizations. And I think because people think that racism is about good people, nice people, bad people, and not actually the lift the difference between life and death we end up with people not really doing the magnitude of work that is needed to be done in order to both free ourselves from these systems and free other people. Yeah, I think I think a fair amount of things comes down to like financial incentives as well. Um, so like obviously if funders say, yeah, like if, if charities are being driven by the funding to a certain extent and funders are kind of like, you need to reach these targets, um, and those targets are about numbers of people, then as long as you're reaching that number of people, then there might be like certain groups of people that aren't being reached. Um, but that's kind of like, yeah, there's not an incentive there to kind of do that additional work. You're not getting the resource to kind of make that difference. Um, 100%, 100%. I mean, I've got such a, a gripe with funders, as yeah. I'm sure everybody in the charity well, hey, hey, yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, this comes on to our, to the next question, really, which is just coming to your point about like your experience in fundraising and learning to kind of have that authenticity um, whilst fundraising and, and staying kind of closer to the grassroots. So can you just share what, what that experience has been like and kind of where you've got to with it? Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is my deep shame story about it. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I started in fundraising when I was 18 years old. Um, I'm 30 now, so it's been a while. And I was very much like, get the money at any cost, right? That's how I was trained. Mm. And it was, you know, sell your organization down the river mm. if, if, if mm. needs be. Like a lot of the time, the way that we would fundraise was, if a, yeah, if a, if, an, if a funder wanted a specific um, outcome, then we would like, you know, cater to that rather than thinking about actually what is the service team saying about like what they need and about what they what their capacity is. So there was definitely like a long period of my time where I was totally unconcerned with like the needs of my organization. And all I was doing was chasing the money and thinking that that was important. Um, I definitely created a lot of problems, I think, in organizations by not listening to the people who were actually doing the work, uh, the people who were, you know, in front-facing jobs, the people who were getting paid considerably less than me and doing a considerably harder job that actually really impacted people's lives. And I think I've come on a long journey. Um, you know, I was taking like millions from like terrible investment <laughs> banking organizations and I didn't give a crap. <laughs> Um, and, you know, over time I started, you know, getting a lot closer with people in service delivery because they were people of color. So, you know, I'd be in these all white fundraising teams and actually I'd be having my lunch breaks with people who were, you know, doing front facing work. And they were talking about how difficult fundraising was making their life <laughs> and how it was kind of, you know, moving them away from what they actually really needed to do. Um, and I was like, oh my gosh, like that's me, like I'm doing that. Um, so I had a kind of, yeah, big, big change of heart. And it was happening while I was working in, you know, a reasonably large organization. 
Um, and my values were changing, but it was very at odds with like what the fundraising um, strategy was. So I left that organization and started working with like smaller grassroots groups um, to help them build fundraising strategies that were rooted in their values. So I would like now I say and spend loads and loads of time getting to know these grassroots groups, understanding their values, understanding their red lines, understanding what it, what would compromise their values and then working with them to understand like the different ways, the different fundraising mechanisms that people can do. I'm really, really focused on trading at the moment and like, you know, people being able to kind of sell goods and sell services because I think actually that is meeting your funder, your partner as an equal and giving them something, giving them kind of access to your world and your way of thinking rather than being like, please, can I have some money? Uh, <laughs> so I've been really fortunate to have kind of I don't know. I don't really know how this happened. A series of very lucky events. Um, I kind of struck a deal with a philanthropist, um, a funder who pays me um, a kind of lump sum to deliver like 30 days or 25, 30 days of fundraising consultancy to grassroots groups. So small, like kind of community organizing groups like Love and Power, Migrants in Culture, Act Build Change, who are like actually could change the world and kind of, yeah, working with them to basically not make all the mistakes that I made and to not compromise their values and to know, to talk to them about how to like challenge their funders. Because I don't, I mean, funding funding as like a institution is obviously quite terrible. The individuals within funders are, some of them are great people, you know, some of them are really, are really kind of thinking about how to be more progressive and really wanting to be challenged. Um, I wouldn't say that's like a large amount of them, but it is like, you know, <laughs> enough. Um, so like kind of really helping them to like na- navigate these systems. And I think it's been really important for me to atone for my sins, actually. Um, I was raised Catholic, so <laughs> <laughs> so atone for what I've done in the past. And to yeah, to to really like stay connected to these organizations who I think really challenge me, you know. Um, I can I'm still quite like you know, as a trained fundraiser, like I'm ruthless in many ways. Uh, like I feel like we all are, but actually just like reminding me about where like white supremacy comes into that kind of like ruthlessness. Um, and it's just, just really helping me with kind of my practice and also just like keeping me aware of like what is happening in communities as well. I would say that I kind of straddle the very kind of big institutional, like large charities, large funders, and the community groups, and I feel very like swayed and like pushed and pulled all the time. I'm terrified that I'll get too close to the NGOs um, and I'll kind of lose lose my way. Um, so I think working with these smaller groups has really helps me to remember why I do the work that I do and why it's so important that we move untethered resources from these seats of power to the people who could remake the world as we know it. Okay. And I think probably the last question for me before we start to kind of wrap up and share some like wider reading and stuff with people, because <laughs> like a lot of our conversation has been quite heavy. So I wanted to ask you about the topic of joyfulness, which I know is is part of the kind of conference agenda. I mean, I I guess I think about you know what is the opposite of racism? It's love. It's joy, right? Like these, like the opposite of like oppressive systems is joyfulness, expansiveness, and love. And I think anybody who is engaging in anti-racist work, anti-oppression work, joy should be at the heart of that, right? Like we're building like joyful, amazing futures. Um, and we have to kind of start living them now. I think lots of people think that like doing anti-racist work is so hard. And I'm like, no, experiencing racism is hard. Like that's the hard bit. Like anything that is countering that is an absolute joy, right? So we have a session called Strategies for Joy. We've had it for the last three years, I think, whereas me and my best friend, we just chat about like the last year, what we've done in order to kind of build joy into our work. Um, And I think, you know, there are so many like amazing kind of like thinkers, activists who like, you know, really like lean into joy. And I think I'm, I don't think I'm an amazing thinker or activist, but I'm a very joyful person. I like to laugh. I like to have fun. I refuse to let these systems kill me. Right. I absolutely refuse. And like, I think it is, yeah, for me, it's, it's quite hard to articulate, but it is like, you know, the opposite of oppression is joy. It's love, right? Like, how can you do anti-oppressive work without joy and love being at the forefront of it, right? That's the world that we're building towards. 
Um, so I think, yeah, the, the I mean, I look, I look at my team, right? Um, there's like six of us. We just laugh and have bants all the time. Bants. Oh, such a mm-hmm. thing to say. <laughs> 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 Annoyed so many bants all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we come together, we mess about. And I think, you know, this work is is really serious. Like, obviously, it's really, really serious. But if you don't, like, come together in community and in celebration, then you'll die doing it, right? And what I think is so interesting is you look at kind of, you know, the history of, like, movements of resistance against oppression. They've all been very, very joyful. You know, there is a reason that, like, you know, uh, people have always kind of come together and celebrated and sang and danced and all of those things, which are kind of other ways of sharing knowledge in many ways. Like, we talk a little bit. I'll share a resource for everyone. Well, you can share a resource for everyone called White Supremacy Culture. And it talks about kind of worship of the written word being part of white supremacy culture and how people understand knowledge is only through the written word. Whereas where my father is from, we're very oral, right? It's oral traditions. We tell stories. We are, it's like the difference between our worldview and world sense, right? We sense the world uh, using like our other uh, senses. And actually like there is an immense joy in that um, and an immense kind of joy in like coming together and celebrating and all of that. Um, I think I'm just naturally a joyful person. Like, and that's part of the reason I think people like working with me is that like, I don't take myself too seriously at all. Like, how could I? <laughs> and, and I think because people think that talking about race is something that's so horrible, when actually I'm like, well, for most Black people, people of colour, we're desperate to talk about it. Like, we need to talk about it for our own survival. We need to talk to white people about it as well. Yeah, I think once you get past that kind of like guilty, uncomfortable phase and into the joyful and the curious, that's where the sweet spot is. Like, I love history. Like, I love learning about the history of like race, racism. There's some horrible things that have happened, obviously. But like, I'm so curious about like how people have resisted before, um, how they've managed to kind of, you know, survive. Like, you won't be able to survive this stuff without joy. Um, And I think, you know particularly for like black people, people of color, like it's a survival mechanism more than anything else. And white people are not very good at joy. <laughs> so they're just generalizing here. Um, because like white supremacy thrives off fear and perfectionism. And it traps you into a box of like always having to be your best self and do the right thing all the time. And actually we need to be freed in order to be messy and complex and joyful and silly. Um, and yeah, that's, I feel like I'm really waffling because it's a hard question. No, it's a, no, it's a good point. And I think, yeah, it's like, can't remember having been in many joyful meetings, (laughs) you know, it's kind of. Come to I my guess team. It's, it's all just of our that, meetings oh, are joyful. Oh, yeah, well, if that's an invite, I'll, I'll come and hang out a bit. <laughs> but yeah, I think it is, it's that thing of like, yeah, when you're in a social setting and you're with friends and stuff, then you can just kind of be a bit silly and you laugh and, you you know, it, then people go to work and they kind of like close off that part of themselves, don't they, and put mm. the kind of the professional image on. And it's almost like, almost everyone's doing that like there's there are very few organizations where that's not the kind of culture um, 100% and I really struggled in the charity sector because of my personality I'm really fun and funny and silly and like that was not okay uh, which I think is really upsetting it was like you have to be more boring you have to be more miserable you have to be more serious and more professional I'm like but I'm getting the money oh, yeah. I'm hitting my targets our partners love working with me, but because I do not fit into this very kind of like professionalized white mold of what an ideal charity worker is, like I always struggled. And I don't know whether it is like a little bit of jealousy. People are like, I want to have fun. So I'm going to take fun <laughs> away from <laughs> um, But I think, you know, there is something really interesting about like charities and like their mission and their work. Like our Lots of charities, their mission is to like free us all from like a horrible, horrible life. But instead, they just like perpetuate like professionalism, fear, urgency, individualism, all the things that really like hold us down. And I've worked with a lot of organizations who, you know, they're like, oh, you know, we're a feminist organization. We've never really brought the joy into our work. And I'm like, well, what the hell are you doing then? Hmm. Like, what are you actually doing? Like, (laughs) if you, you know, and I think that is the thing about if you're thinking about an expansive future where we're all free, like that is joy. If you're tinkering around the edges 
of the system and working kind of, you know, within, not to say that you shouldn't work within the system, but if you're, if you're not being bold, if you're not being brave, you're never going to get to that joyful place because you don't have a vision. Right. And like, I think that's where I see NGOs at the moment is that they're just so kind of focused on what's happening right now. And like, yes, there was so many crises happening all the time, but crises have been happening all the time since forever. And when we talk about radical imagination, like we're talking about what could a future 50 years from now look like? And like me and my team, that's what we're thinking about. So we're having a great time because we're just, we've decided to just live in that future instead. (laughs) 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 Um, Yeah, I don't think I articulated that very well, but that's fine. Um, But yeah, I do feel like I feel I'm... I mean, you see the reports of like, you know, toxic cultures, workplace harassment, bullying coming out of the charity sector. The charity sector has an identity that it just does not live up to, which is like it should be a joyful space for us to rebuild futures. But instead, it's a place of exploited workers who are exhausted, um, who are underappreciated, undervalued, um, who aren't actually fulfilling their mission at all as much as they might want to. So, yeah, I'm not surprised that there's a lack of joy in the charity sector. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, let's see if we can uh, speed up that 50-year time scale a little bit. be nice to see a bit more bit more joy while we're still actually of working age. <laughs> um, okay, so I imagine that you're going to have lots of resources and books and things to recommend. Um, obviously, people should go and check out the conference, get tickets for that on the 27th. Um, what else What else would you signpost people towards? I was signposting towards my YouTube channel. Yeah, <laughs> I cool. love saying that because I feel so silly. Um, hey, yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have a YouTube channel called BAME Online, so you don't even need to remember a new word, um, where me and my colleague Khadija, we break down the words that we think are being really misused in the charity sector, like racism, like intersectionality, like decolonization, talk about what they actually mean, whether they actually apply to what charities are doing or are not doing, and like have a discussion about what that means for like, you know, your average worker, your individual worker, as well as for the system as a whole. I can share a reading list um, as well. Yeah, um, that'd be cool. All the yeah. books that I've read. I'd say my favorite book, Still is What White People Can Do Next by Emma Dabry, um, which kind of traces the invention of whiteness in the 1660s as a tool to break down the bonds of solidarity between oppressed people, very specifically Black um, African uh, enslaved people and European, particularly Irish indentured servants, and how that legacy of whiteness has basically kind of created the same logics that we saw in the Brexit campaign, the same logics that we saw in the Sewell report, et cetera, et cetera. Brilliant book. She's an Irish academic, um, mixed Nigerian, and she's just brilliant. And it's really funny as well. And it's short. If you like a short book, <laughs> then that's very important. I would also recommend that people read What um, White Supremacy Culture by Tema Ocken. Uh, What I think is really great about that is that she's a white woman talking about how she sees the features of white supremacy culture. And actually, I think white people are experts on white supremacy, but they keep thinking that. I am. <laughs> I think it's kind of funny. Um, but she looks at like, and you see it so happens so much in the in the charity sector. Like, yeah, features like fear, paternalism, individualism, binaries, all of that stuff. And she actually kind of breaks that down a little bit more, kind of talks about that within kind of a kind of cultural, personal, institutional framework. I have found that really helpful in seeing how those features show up in how I structure my business. Um, it's given me kind of really clear direction as to like the way I don't want things to be. Um, and she offers a lot of kind of, yeah, counter principles. Um, so when I work with a lot of organizations, we'll look at all of these features and I'll be like, okay, if we were to live in a totally different way, what would it look like? And then people are like, oh, abundance. And I'm like, great, this is good, you know? And I think it's, yeah, that, that's really, really helpful. What else would I recommend? I feel like those are the kind of two, two main things. Um, Derek Bardewell's book is really good as well. Yeah. Cool. We'll, we'll uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll, uh, we'll put those on, and then yeah, if there's any like further reading lists that you want to send through as well, we'll get those on the web page so people can have a little browse through right. and get themselves a little mini library of books to read up on. Um, and the YouTube uh, channel sounds like fun as well. It um, is fun. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> hope hope to see a bit of joyfulness on there. <laughs> um, it's. I mean, I try. I try and bring the joyfulness. <laughs> yeah, bring the joy. 
have all the bands. <laughs> and <laughs> is there any final request of the listener that you'd like to make or anything that you'd like to end on? Um, yeah, I think that, I mean, maybe if people aren't used to talking about race and hearing the term white supremacy in this type of way, they might be feeling a little bit uncomfortable right now. Um, and that's fine. Um, I think what people need to do is get better at sitting in discomfort and interrogating and being curious about why they might feel uncomfortable. Um, for me, I think people just need to let go of guilt um, and get out of their own way um, and stop seeing yourself as a good person. Like this site morally better than everybody else, you know, it's, it's dated. It's in the past. Like, let's see ourselves as complex, interesting, flawed human beings who are great, capable of great love and also great harm, right? Um, and actually start seeing ourselves as who we really are and start building towards who we really want to be rather than trying to create this facade of perfectionism. And yeah, find people who, you know, you're inspired by um, and who you want to be in cahoots with and then do it. <laughs> Then do the thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, awesome. That's yeah, it. That, that it sounds like very sound advice. So <laughs> <laughs> I will definitely work on that myself. Um, thanks, Martha. That's great. Thanks very much for coming on. And as thanks we said, we'll, we'll share all of those links on the webpage. Uh, so people can check that out, including the link to the conference to get signed up for. Um, but yeah, just JMB Consulting, Google it, jump on the website, and it will be dead easy to find. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Charity Impact Podcast. Thank you for giving us your time and attention. I know how precious a resource time is. I hope you enjoyed the show. If I could trouble you for a further two minutes of your day, I'd love to hear from you. You can leave a review on your podcast player via ratethispodcast.com slash charity. You can engage with us on LinkedIn and Twitter, just search Charity Impact Podcast, or search Charity Impact Podcast in your browser to find our website where you can email me directly and you can subscribe to our email list for the opportunity to submit questions for me to ask upcoming guests. You can also find all the show notes and the previous episodes and links to resources that our guests have recommended there. Until next time, take care and thanks for listening.